0: This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's, it's never
1: just, easy to yeah. challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman.
0: Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All
1: of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system puts us into fight or flight mode
0: and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. Hi, Georgia here. In honor of infant and pregnancy awareness, Loss month I interviewed Dr. Laura Shaheen. She's a reproductive endocrinologist and the author of *Not Broken*, an approachable guide to miscarriage and recurrent pregnancy loss. I interview her to add further color around some of the important points that she makes in her book, based on a lot of the questions I see many of you asking when it comes to miscarriage and recurrent pregnancy loss. Before we dive into the episode, a couple of announcements. One, FemPower Health podcast is now an Alexa skill. You can either follow me on Instagram and check out my link in the bio, and it'll take you right there, or you can type in the word FemPower and add it as a skill. Additionally, you can find the FemPower Health podcast on Apple, Amazon, Google, Stitcher, and Spotify. Last but not least, if you have any input or questions for me, please do contact me. You can reach me at info at fempower-health.com because this podcast is for you and I'd like to know what you'd like to hear and even changes you'd like me to make. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Hi, Dr. Shaheen. It's so nice to talk to you today. Thanks for joining. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm really happy to connect with you. I wanted to meet with you because I'd asked some of my connections who would be the expert on miscarriage and recurrent pregnancy loss. Mm -hmm. And your name came up. And then I learned about a great book that you wrote called Not Broken, An Approachable Guide to Miscarriage and Recurrent Pregnancy Loss. And I did read the book. Tell us about yourself
1: and your background. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for those kind words i um i really appreciate that um it was a real joy to write that book i really wrote it for my patients because um it's such an overwhelming emotional and complicated topic to be dealing with miscarriage and i kept looking for a resource for my patients to provide for them to get those you know questions answered and i just couldn't find it so i i I mean, that sounds so simple, and I know it's not, but I really did write it for them. So about me, so I'm a reproductive endocrinologist, which means um, after medical school, I did a residency in obstetrics and gynecology in San Francisco, the University of California there, and then what did subspecialty training in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at Stanford. And so that's really training kind of beyond uh, your typical primary OBGYN to really focus on, you know, reproductive health. And a big part of that training has to do with recurrent first trimester miscarriage. So it's really common for people to not really know who the, the real specialists are to focus on recurrent first trimester miscarriage. And it really is reproductive endocrinologists. We really are the focus. And I happened to do my fellowship at Stanford when my mentor, Dr. Ruth Lati, was starting the Center for Recurrent Pregnancy Loss at Stanford. So, just right place, right time, incredible learning. She really brought together a multidisciplinary approach to recurrent loss, even though we are the specialists, you know, it takes learning so much more about genetics and the immune system and the blood clotting system. And there's so much science and research going into things that you have to approach it as a team. And I learned a lot um, from her and through that experience.
0: Yes. In your book, you talked about so many light bulb moments. I think if I recall, the first one was women would come in and test positive for pregnancy and they would have severe anxiety. And and you were like, oh my God, like this is not, you know, yay, I got pregnant. It's Can I keep the baby? And it's so true when I um, hear friends and just women talking on social media about it, it's constant panic over, can I keep the baby? Yeah. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that experience that these women and
1: couples have. Absolutely. I talk to people about the innocent joy of a positive pregnancy test has really taken away from someone after a miscarriage. You know, the narrative, what we're taught growing up is that it's Mm -hmm. easy to conceive. You know, it can happen when we're ready and that a positive pregnancy test means baby. And when the narrative shifts, In any direction, like it takes longer to conceive than what you expect, or you have a miscarriage. Um, It's such a shock because we don't talk about what can really happen enough. I very distinctly remember, you know, my first fertility patients. You know, in training, you're still learning, you're still training, but you are a physician, and you know, you have your own patients and fellowship. And um, I just loved calling with positive pregnancy tests and I'll just never forget the first time I called with a pregnancy test and the patient just sort of sighed and I was taken aback you know I, I was just used to such like joy and happiness and and she's like oh Dr. Shaheen this is really just the beginning for me and I'm just really not sure what's going to happen and it was such a learning experience for me and part of having a program for recurrent miscarriage is really teaching everybody on the team that we all are joyful and happy with a positive pregnancy test, but to not be surprised if someone's emotions are guarded and to really walk them through that process and make sure that they know that that's normal. Right.
0: And I like what you said earlier too, because that's something I'm learning. I mean, I entered um, you know, really focusing on women's health after my own fertility struggles and then through it since I've been on this journey now 10 years, what I've realized is this is not just a fertility thing. It's a women's health thing. The themes are the same in all women's health. And one of the themes too, is just really helping people understand that a lot of times, just because of how the training works, you do often have to go to a subspecialist. And I think when a lot of people think reproductive endocrinologist, they think fertility doctor. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's becoming clear that It's broader than that. And and if someone is having issues outside of the, the basics, sometimes going to that specialist early on seems to be key.
1: Yeah, that's a really important point that you bring up. I think that there's a real assumption that primary care doctors and primary obstetricians and gynecologists have a lot of expertise in fertility. And quite honestly, this is not true. I mean, I can speak from my own experience that In medical school, you know, I did not learn a lot about women's health in obstetrics and gynecology residency. It was really focused on delivering babies and, you know, surgical expertise as far as women's health is concerned. Um, And contraception was really a focus, but fertility was sort of, you know, here's a couple of tests and just wasn't really a focus. I hope that that's changing in training. But I think that when anybody goes to see a doctor about fertility issues or miscarriages, that they have a really open discussion with that provider about what that provider is comfortable with. Things change so much, too, that if anybody is really more than five or 10 years outside of training, the recommendations have drastically changed. Um, You know, I published my book, Not Broken, in March 2017 and already recommendations have changed and I'm working on a second edition because things change you know so quickly in this field so providers unless they're regularly seeing patients for fertility and miscarriage really might not feel very comfortable and so just having a strategy saying like I really want to work with you but like you know when would you refer and how comfortable are you really caring for me is an important topic
0: I appreciate you saying that because if if we women are voicing some of these concerns, it may come across as we're disgruntled, but having a doctor in training say this is what we're trained on, this is what we're not, I think is really, really important because I hear so many stories about women being dismissed and you talk about it in your book too when it comes to miscarriage and recurrent pregnancy loss. And I think this just echoes why it's so important to not be fearful of the questions and if you're getting dismissed. It could be defensiveness from the doctor of not having the right training. There could be a lot of things behind it. And I think women just need to understand that. And by you validating, like, look, this is what I'm taught, with the basics, and this is why I did the subspecialty. So I appreciate your openness about that. Yeah. Thank you. I hate to start with something so frustrating, but you started with the book too, is there's no definitive way to approach recurrent miscarriage. Um, so, I, I think women need to understand that that is the starting point, is it's not consistent. And you even said the guidelines are changing. When I read your book, I think it was two or more um, miscarriages that were clinically diagnosed. Is that still the guideline? Because I had thought it was three or more. So, maybe you can yeah, talk a little so, bit about and that.
1: It's actually changed. So, um, it's, it's really a progression. So, before 2013, Mm -hmm. The recommendation was three miscarriages, and um, we should clarify a clinical miscarriage, meaning far enough along that you can see anything on ultrasound or have kind of a tissue diagnosis. So this whole area where women are having a positive pregnancy test and then a late period or what we would call biochemical miscarriages, that was excluded for years and years and years okay so before 2013 for an evaluation of recurrent miscarriage it was really recommended that someone have three or more consecutive miscarriages
0: oh my goodness (laughs) so it's
1: really really defined okay um and so if someone had you know a miscarriage and then a baby And then two more miscarriages, you know, the doctor could say, Oh, I just think you should keep trying. Um, And sometimes people would initiate testing and and treatment before that. But I'm just saying, this is what the professional medical guidelines said. In um, 2013, the American society of reproductive medicine, which is the professional medical society for reproductive endocrinologists in the United States, like me said, for the purposes of a clinical evaluation, it's okay to start testing after two clinical miscarriages. Um, And they were very specific about the clinical pregnancy loss is not biochemical miscarriage, but you've seen something on ultrasound and the pregnancy stops developing or you have tissue to to test or see um, under a microscope. And um, that Really was the definition for a very long time. So, again, but again, two or more. And that was a huge change, you know, for women who'd been told, oh, you have to have three or more to go to two, was a huge, you know, wonderful thing, I think, for women. And some doctors are still not even aware of that definition. And it's been out for seven years. And it really allowed for more testing. And the reason that ASRM changed that is because. They said, you know what? The chances that somebody has a miscarriage after two losses is about the same as after three losses. And so why not start an evaluation? Even though it's unlikely that we're gonna find anything, if you do find something like a uterine issue that you can fix or a hormonal issue that you can treat, then you could really prevent that third miscarriage. So that was a really big deal. In 2017, in November, um, 2017, ESRI, which is the European equivalent of ASRM, they came out with an extensive updated guidelines and definitions for current loss. And they say two or more, and they don't necessarily define whether it's biochemical or not. Interesting. So that opened the door a little bit. But actually, in March 2020, you know, months like this year, ASRM came out with a brand new practice committee guideline defining infertility and defining recurrent miscarriage. And it removed the definition of clinical from from the, the clarification, and it removed the word consecutive. So the definition of recurrent miscarriage according to ASRM as of March 2020 is basically two pregnancy losses. And they don't have that subspecialty, oh, you have to clarify that it's a tissue diagnosis or an ultrasound diagnosis. And then they even, they don't say the words, this includes bio- biochemical miscarriages, but the fact that they deliberately remove that clarification opens the door. And they say a follow-up is just this little sentence that basically says each miscarriage really should be evaluated. Like it's just wow. really, Are you really opens the door. Mm-hmm. This yeah. Is and it's incredible. It it really is. And it just, um, it just validates, you know, the importance of each loss and that it's okay to do evaluations. And I do not have ins and outs and sort of a, a very strong understanding of how reimbursements work as far as insurance is concerned. But I truly hope that if there are any limitations on insurance reimbursements that definitions like this from uh, you know, the professional medical society of the United States, I really hope that this helps some women get some testing that they need. That is incredible. Because
0: one of the questions that I've been wanting to ask a specialist like yourself is why these guidelines? Because the data, what I kept hearing is the data was, well, after so many pregnancies, people are going to get pregnant anyways. And I'm like... Yes, but if you have one miscarriage, it's a big deal. Like, why should a woman have to suffer through multiple to then be good enough to get further testing? And you know, like I think of an example where, um, you know, originally when FemPower Health started, we were focused mostly on fertility. And again, when I had that aha moment that this is like all women's health, um, I've broadened out. But we were interviewing a lot of women around the country, and I'll give you an example: is in New York City you can't go to a fertility clinic without getting Fragile X tested for. And then I interviewed a woman in North Carolina and Fragile X was part of the miscarriage panel. So she had three miscarriages and then found out Fragile X, she had Fragile X. How common is miscarriage and
1: recurrent pregnancy loss? It happens so much more than people really talk about it. And um, and so I think normalizing it is really important because when it happens to you, if you haven't talked to your friends, about it, you can feel like you're the only person that's ever had a miscarriage, but it's really so much more common. Um, It's really one in four pregnancies. Like that's a way to kind of think about it. There's certain things that put people at higher risk of miscarriage, like um, advanced maternal age, especially some chronic illnesses like diabetes or untreated thyroid um, disorders will put people at higher risk. When we're you know, women are in their say 20s, I'd say with a positive pregnancy test, there's about a 15% chance that the pregnancy doesn't continue. When we're in our mid thirties, that's closer to, you know, 25 or 30%. And honestly, by the time that we're 40, it's about a 50% chance. If you see a positive pregnancy test, there's a 50% chance that you'll have a loss or a 50% chance that you'll have a baby. There's so many caveats to that. So, yes. <laughs> um, you know, I'm talking about, you know, getting to the point where you can see something on, you know, ultrasound. You know, I'm talking about clinical miscarriages. If you do include positive pregnancy tests and late period, like a biochemical miscarriage, that number could be significantly higher. And I think that the, Ability for people to be able to test at home and to follow their cycles and do home pregnancy tests is really empowering, and people can learn what's going on with their body. But I just don't think people realize how just how common biochemical miscarriages are. It can actually be two or three times a year if people are having unprotected intercourse and not necessarily tracking that it, that they can have biochemical miscarriages, and it doesn't mean that there's anything. Wrong with the person, in that, of course, it feels awful, and emotionally, it's a loss. And when you're trying to start your family, even a period without a positive pregnancy test is grieving and lost time. And I understand that emotional piece, but biologically, human reproduction is so inefficient. We've learned so much from doing genetic testing on embryos for people who are doing IVF and doing genetic testing on pregnancy losses that do get to a point where we can, can test things that if you really include, you know, early, early biochemical losses, it can be as high as, you know, 70%. Um, wow! So I, I say that as hopefully a, a positive thing, and it doesn't sound very positive, but I do really try to educate my patients that when doctors do say, oh, just try again, that really, you can you can say it in two different ways. You can say it in a dismissive way, like, oh, I'm not going to do any testing. You should just try again. Or you could say, you know what? Actually, it's so common to have miscarriages. It's probably most likely an issue with that particular embryo. And the next time that you try, you have a much higher chance of having a totally healthy baby without any intervention from me. Like, doesn't that sound a lot better? Because that actually is the science. You know, it doesn't mean that we don't do testing. It doesn't mean that we don't validate and really think through losses and come up with a strategy for family planning. But really, truly, just I want people to understand just how common it is. And if I can get that information out, it doesn't doesn't take away the sadness or the grieving. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't do testing and take care of everybody. But I just want people to realize just how normal it is.
0: FemPower Health is pleased to partner with the upcoming FemTech and Consumer Innovation Summit. The summit is the latest deep dive event, part of the Women's Health Innovation Series, looking to tackle this growing sector of women's health. Having had continental success in driving innovation, investment, research, and partnerships in traditional women's health care by bringing together critical stakeholders, join us in New York on June 7th and 8th as we channel this success into the consumer sector of women's health. Visit www.femtechconsumerinnovation.com to view the superstar speaker lineup and enter code FEMPOWER15 for 15% off your ticket. Hope to see you there.
1: You know, when they were first trying to work on getting a home pregnancy test, um, the NIH was working on this, you know, in the 70s, they were um, just getting random samples from women every single month around the time of their period from across the United States. And when the um, researchers realized just how common biochemical miscarriages were, that was one of the arguments to not allow home pregnancy tests to be so- sold in drugstores because they didn't think women could handle that information. <laughs> wow. Just a little bit of history for you. Um, and so I do think that we can handle that information. And I think that it is actually good information to know that think about all the hurdles that somebody is overcoming. If they have a positive pregnancy test, ovulation happened, egg and sperm liked each other. Fertilization happened. The uterus accepted that embryo, the pregnancy hormone started to be made. And you know what? That embryo just wasn't meant to be. It just, it didn't continue. That doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the woman's immune system or blood clotting issues. Like it doesn't mean that she did anything wrong. But like, let's focus on, wow, all these things went right. Let's see if there's anything that we can, you know, diagnose or or take care of you. But like, hey, this is not as abnormal as society makes us think it is. Thank you for sharing that. And by the way, I know we can't
0: go through the whole laundry list because you have all sorts of things listed in your book. So for anyone who wants the details, I would encourage you to read Dr. Shaheen's book because it's very simple. It's honestly a, a quick read. Um, during COVID with a four-year-old as a single mom, I was able to read it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, so I do encourage women to read it, but
1: maybe you can just give some highlights. You know, there are certain tests that um, all professional medical societies really do agree on. And then there's a lot of controversial stuff when it comes to testing for miscarriage and recurrent loss. And so the things that most professional societies recommend testing for are, number one, um, Genetic issues, as far as a balanced translocation in the people that are getting pregnant. And let me back up one second. I just want to clarify: the most common cause of first trimester miscarriage is a chromosomal issue in the embryo. And so, when you're doing testing in a couple for recurrent loss, you're testing the people that are getting pregnant, and at least 50% of the time or more, I would argue, but the studies say 50%, you don't find anything abnormal in the people that are getting pregnant. So before anybody does a single test, I just want to clarify, hey, there's a real chance that we're not going to find anything wrong, but I really want to make sure that we're not missing anything else. So it's kind of like setting that expectation. And so the balanced translocation is basically a genetic chromosomal rearrangement and one of the parents that does not impact their own health but when they go to make eggs and sperm some of the eggs and sperm are going to be missing big portions of dna and will result in miscarriage so it's a blood test it's you're testing for karyotype and what you're specifically looking for is a balanced translocation it we only find it about three percent of the time it's very rare to find. But when you do find it, it, it really does explain a lot what's going on. Um, we look at uterine issues or anatomic issues that can put someone at higher risk of miscarriage. So um, a uterine septum is a fibrous band of tissue that someone can be born with that can make it um, a higher risk of miscarriage if the embryo is implanting on this avascular, not very supportive tissue within the uterus. Um, some fibroids put people at higher risk of miscarriage. Um, a lot of people have fibroids and they are not all affecting infertility or miscarriage risk, but fibroids that are inside the uterine cavity, you know, where an embryo would implant, or significantly large fibroids, like eight, 10 centimeters, those might need to be addressed. Um, hormonal issues that we look for, um, diabetes, thyroid disease, Um, elevated prolactin, those are important things to rule out. So genetic, anatomic, hormonal, immune. So the one immune issue that's been associated with recurrent miscarriage is antiphospholipid syndrome. And it's a collection of risk factors you can see clinically and then certain antibodies that you can test for in the blood of the mom that if they're present at the time of the embryo trying to implant, they can really impact implantation. And simple treatments can be aspirin and heparin, which is a blood thinning medication. And so really those are the blood tests and the anatomic tests that really the medical professional societies all agree on. Other tests that are sometimes done are like a semen analysis, just to kind of get a good baseline. There's nothing on a semen analysis that's going to say, oh, this is why a couple is having miscarriages. But if someone's taking a long time to conceive, sometimes you can find a sperm issue and it can really help with planning. Some people check for antibodies to the thyroid. That's pretty controversial. But so the if you have antibodies to your thyroid, that might signal that you're not able to keep up as well actually in pregnancy. So sometimes people look for that. I have a whole chapter on sort of controversial tests and, and treatment and pros and cons. So, um, but I'm really trying to focus on your question, which is sort of what is recommended. And, and so everybody agrees on that, but individual doctors will sometimes order different things. And so that's honestly, that's why I wrote that book, because I wanted patients to be able to be advocates for their care and kind of understand it in really simple terms. All the medical references are there, including ASRM guidelines, and studies to support why these tests should be done. And so sometimes, you know, people might be able to have a really um, fulfilling conversation with their physician and say, you know, this is, you know, this is kind of what I was thinking about getting tested for. And sometimes it's helpful. I don't want it ever to be a tense situation between doctor and patient, but it's okay to, to learn and have that conversation. The septate uterus.
0: I've heard that it does impact being able to carry a child and that it doesn't. Mm-hmm. One other interesting point is, I actually attended the ASRM conference last year. And if you were there, I'm sorry, I didn't know you then. I would have uh, definitely wanted to say hello. It was a US doctor and a European doctor comparing ASRM and ESRI guidelines around a septate uterus. And what was fascinating is they took, a um, Several different, I guess, images, and they said, "Okay, if we did ASRM guideline versus ESRI, would they be diagnosed with it or not?" So they couldn't even agree on whether or not someone had it, and then it was still unclear if it impacted um, pregnancy. So, since since you are the reproductive endocrinologist here, can you <laughs> shed light on this? Because as as a woman, I'm sitting here like, "What?" So the doctors don't even agree on whether or not it matters and if I even have it. And I don't even, most women probably wouldn't even know what a septate uterus is to even ask their doctor, do I have this? So
1: please do share. (laughs) Absolutely. And that is one of the hardest parts about this field. Um, Number one, it, there is not a lot of really strong, consistent, well done clinical trials. And that's the best way to really get definitive answers in science and there are just not a lot of them there. And um, that leaves a void, you know, it leaves a void and, um, and then patients can sometimes get stuck in the middle. There are absolutely women that have septate uteruses that have their families. So there it, it isn't a complete If you have a septic uterus, you're never going to have a baby. The way I think about it is there's lots of places in the uterine cavity for an embryo to implant. And so if the embryo implants on, you know, great, wonderful, vascular, healthy uterine lining kind of away from the septum, probably that person's going to have a full-term delivery. If the embryo implants on the septum and it's not very vascular and it can't really support a pregnancy for very long they might have a higher chance of miscarriage. There are definitely studies that show that if septums are removed, which is a very simple procedure, it's called a hysteroscopy, and it's taking a little camera kind of through the cervix, no incisions on the belly, just um, through the cervix when someone's asleep and comfortable, and just snipping that little fibrous tissue. It's a very um, low-risk procedure that if it has high yield, it might be beneficial. You kind of have to weigh everything. But there are studies that show if someone is having miscarriages and they have a septum resected, the very next time that they get pregnant, they have a lower miscarriage rate than you would expect um, for what their history had been to date. Okay, So that's not a perfect test. A perfect scientific clinical trial would be, oh, we've got this group of You know, 200 women, they they all have the same number of miscarriages. They all have the same exact diagnosis and image of a septate uterus. Half of them get it fixed. Half of them don't. And let's see what happens in the next pregnancy. And that study just doesn't exist. And so it leaves room for doctors to think about things in different ways.
0: The other one I wanted to bring up is the thyroid antibodies Uh, again, what I hear over and over is the most common test is TSH. There is disagreement on what a normal TSH is. And I know, like, for example, I heard at Yale, they test the full thyroid panel because they've seen so much Hashimoto's that they're shocked. So they have just decided full thyroid panel. So maybe you can talk a little bit about um, that TSH test versus the thyroid antibodies and why it's so important, just so people understand why you had um, brought that up in the controversy.
1: Sure. It's important to realize just physiologically that the baby or the pregnancy doesn't make its own thyroid hormone until after 10 weeks of pregnancy. For the first 10 weeks of pregnancy or about the first trimester, the maternal thyroid gland has to work about 30% harder in order to support the thyroid in the baby. If someone has overt hypothyroidism, or overt hyperthyroidism. If they really have active disease, they are definitely at higher risk of miscarriage. What's controversial is if someone's thyroid is working fine outside of pregnancy, you know, what level should we be treating to? You know, if the woman is fine, you know, is this a cause of miscarriage or is it not? There's something called subclinical hypothyroidism also where the TSH, the TSH is the thyroid stimulating hormone and it comes from the hypothalamus to tell the thyroid to do what it needs to do. And so it kind of makes sense. Like, well, we should just be testing the the, the hormones. Like we should be testing what the thyroid's doing to figure out whether we need medication or not. The tests just are kind of hard to do actually. Um, They're pretty finicky. And so the TSH has been the standard of what to check. So it's like pressing on the gas pedal. If the TSH is high, that means the thyroid is needing more bribery or more gas to, to kind of go and get what it needs to get done. And so the controversy really lies in what TSH level is normal and what's, what's abnormal. How are people at risk? And then what about if... The panel, the thyroid seems to be working just fine. The hypothalamus seems to be working just fine, but someone has antibodies just in their system to the thyroid. The theory is that that's a warning sign that if those people have those antibodies, when they get pregnant, their own thyroid isn't going to keep up. And the hard part is that it really takes about four to six weeks for our bodies to really reflect a change in TSH level that's reflective of a medication so the worry is that if you just wait and test in pregnancy and somebody that's high risk or might be showing signs of not being able to keep up that just waiting until they're pregnant it might be too late to make that difference um and the controversies are just all over the map you know thyroid um association in the United States says something a little bit different from the endocrine society in Europe. Um, The American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecologists says something a little bit different than the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in Britain. Um, You know, the studies are kind of all over the place. And so even in the most updated um, SRE guidelines that came out in 2017 for recurrent miscarriage, they basically said, hey, here are the studies everybody says something a little bit different. There's no definitive, you know, absolute for treating subclinical hypothyroidism or isolated antibodies, but it's really not unreasonable to focus and get a TSH level under 2.5 when someone's trying to conceive. It's very low risk and it really might help. And, you know, there's so many things that hypothyroidism has been associated with in pregnancy. You know, hypothyroidism is associated not only with miscarriage, but um, preterm delivery, um, lower birth weight for babies, higher risk of gestational diabetes, and even lower IQ points (laughs) later um, in the babies later. And so just there's a difference between studies that are really actively proving that you need to do an intervention versus you know an intervention that is you know no evidence of harm and it might really improve options and so it's just it really is individualized but everybody should look for thyroid disorders all the professional medical societies agree on that. Like you should definitely test for it. They just sometimes disagree which tests to do. And then they disagree a little bit on what level we should be shooting for. Okay.
0: Now, I, I appreciate your explanation because I think, you know, one of the things that was frustrating and, you know, is that we want answers. The studies aren't there, but then there's so much logic around how the body works when you really break it down. And I can assure you that anyone who's struggling with miscarriages and recurrent pregnancy loss, PCOS, endometriosis, you name it, they will stand on their head for three days if you tell them that will change what they're going through. And I'm not at all saying doctors scrap clinical trials, but I think you know, I think women need to understand there are some levels of logic and when you weigh the risks and the benefits, you know, it's really important to just understand and be educated on how the body works. And I love that your book talks about these tests and the pros and cons um, because it's it's critical to know because the trials just aren't there. The funding is not there. Um, you know, I've seen in my industry so many of the pharmaceutical companies selling off their women's health divisions. What does mm. that say? So, speaking of testing, so we have become a society that because of all the technology and data and Google, what would you give someone as
1: guidance? I think what I would really um, want people to hear is that every pregnancy is a new opportunity that it's very unlikely that there's something that people are dramatically missing um most people like the vast majority of people will go on to have a baby if they are having miscarriages because all of those things are right you know the again, you know, fertilization and implantation and, and every pregnancy is a new opportunity because it's a new set of genetics, okay, in that embryo. Um, and that when, I, I would advise that when people are reading things on the internet to just be very cautious, you know, you can write whatever you want on the internet, you know, and even when people have the most, you know, altruistic or generous Feelings, and they're really trying to help other people. You know, when they write, like, I ate pepperoni pizza every day for a month and I finally got pregnant and had my baby. To that person, it was the pepperoni pizza, and they want to share that with the world. But um, just take everything with a grain of salt, and if something really sounds too good to be true, there's a real chance that it is, um, but it's okay to bring it up and have those conversations with with your doctor. Like I have, I have so many people that reach out to me around the world saying like, Oh my gosh, can you, can you be my doctor? Like I read your book. I really want to do that. And, and honestly, I really, I can't, I can't be everyone's doctor because having recurrent miscarriage and especially infertility, it's not just one visit. It's not just one interaction. It's an ongoing relationship and caring for somebody for however long it takes for them to complete their family. And so finding that person that you can have those questions answered, um, I think is really important. Somebody that can help filter Dr. Google.
0: So one quick question um, about testing is progesterone. I wanted to get your thoughts on it only because it seems to be coming a hot topic, or at least in the circles that I've been dealing with, like the proof test is out where it's testing um, progesterone. Um, I think you, you pee on a stick for a several days and um, it'll tell you kind of what's going on. Because I think you even said in your book, a one-shot test um, on day 21-ish of your cycle isn't necessarily sufficient. Then there was um, the PROMISE trial that recently came out with its results. And at the ASRM conference last year, they were quite hopeful about the results. And then the results officially came out and they were devastated. And they said, look, it it does not show progesterone helping. And then there's data saying it depends on the day that you give someone progesterone and that's why the PROMISE trial didn't work. So given that so many people are starting to talk about progesterone, can you educate us on what we do know, what we don't know, just so that women can figure out how it fits into their um, ability to get pregnant?
1: Absolutely. Well, um, progesterone is very important. It's the dominant hormone after ovulation it's the dominant hormone, you know, like when the embryo is implanting. It's the dominant hormone in early pregnancy. Um, it is an immune modulator. It helps shift the immune system to a more receptive state. And we know from um, studies that were done in the 60s that if someone loses their source of progesterone, before six or eight weeks of pregnancy, that the pregnancy will stop developing. So for the first six to eight weeks of pregnancy, the only source of progesterone is coming from the ovary, you know, from the follicle that released the egg. It's called a corpus luteum. And then after six to eight weeks of pregnancy, the the pregnancy itself starts making its own progesterone. So knowing that the theory is, is, oh, well, maybe if someone's progesterone is low, Maybe that's why the pregnancy is stopping early and not continuing. And so can we figure out, you know, what progesterone level is the right level? And um, if we are going to treat, how do we treat? The problem with testing progesterone in a blood test is physiologically the way it is produced by the corpus luteum is very sporadic. So it will, you know, be 20 at 10 a.m. And then it'll be ten at two p.m. And so, trying to decide whether someone needs progesterone based on blood levels is really faulty. Based on physiology, you just you can either be overly reassured by the levels that you get or overly nervous. Um, and so, people have tried, you know, testing multiple different times in the luteal phase to try to have an average. You know, people have kind of tried multiple ways to see. I think the only real reason to test progesterone is just just to confirm that somebody's had ovulation because that's very black and white. If someone's ovulated, in most labs, the progesterone level is going to be over three. You get that information, but using it as a way to dictate whether or not someone should take supplemental progesterone has its real faults. Interesting. Um, I do give a lot of progesterone because I feel that it's very low harm and very low risk. And I can't necessarily prove who needs it or not. And I'm very honest when I give it to patients. I say, this is not an end all be all. I'm way over prescribing this. You know, I could be giving it to a hundred women and helping three. And there's 97 women out there taking something they don't need. But let's just talk about it. Um, okay. And so in my practice, I don't test for it. I just, I do offer it to a lot of my miscarriage patients. I typically start it with a positive pregnancy test for a lot of different reasons. There are definitely some times where I started a little bit early. The problem with the Promise trial is that they started it as late as six weeks of pregnancy. Oh, wow. no so no it wonder. just didn't make sense. Okay. Um, if you're trying to, 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 Do it to treat a deficiency in the corpus luteum if you're already starting it close to when the pregnancy is starting to do it anyway the pregnancy is already really well established right so okay um so if you one thing that's really important to understand is if you start it before ovulation it can actually decrease the chances of someone getting pregnant so you really have to have pretty predictable regular menstrual cycles and kind of know when you're ovulating, if you're gonna start it before a positive pregnancy test, because the uterine lining and the embryo have to fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. Yep. And if that progesterone has been there way too long, it could throw off that match. Okay. Um, and you know, progesterone, it has side effects. It is the pregnancy hormone. It will delay the onset of a period whether someone's pregnant or not, right, or if someone's not pregnant, it'll delay starting a period, not forever, but for enough days and enough negative pregnancy tests that can be really emotionally challenging. Um, it makes people feel pregnant, so more, you know, tender breasts and mood swings and GI issues and and things like that. So already you're so excited and ready to start or complete your family, and then you're having a delayed period on top of all of these symptoms. And then to find out you're not pregnant, is just emotionally really hard. Um, okay. So there's lots of pros and cons, but it is something that that I do use in my practice. Two things there. One
0: is progesterone and oil and the suppositories are going to be the best mode for not, not going on to over-the-counter types of pills, correct?
1: Okay. Right, yeah. And the studies that did show a benefit for decreasing miscarriage um, did use vaginal progesterone. Um, so that, that is encouraging because those progesterone shots, the progesterone oil that you mentioned, um, just they can be uncomfortable. So yep. I really do usually offer vaginal suppositories. Okay, and then the other piece is,
0: I have heard that women who are asking their doctors to prescribe it, many of the clinicians refuse. So what do those poor women do? Because it has to be a prescription. They cannot do over the counter. They need the help. As you mentioned, you know, you didn't say it directly, but my takeaway is it honestly could possibly do more help than harm. I mean, if someone doesn't want the side effects, obviously they can have the power to choose. But, you know, if I were the woman and you're telling me this information, I would take the progesterone. So what what do women do when their doctor refuses to prescribe it?
1: Yeah, um, I think it just, takes a healthy conversation, and it might take, um, honestly, getting a second opinion.
0: Okay. Thank you for being straightforward with that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, last question
0: is about, um, there's a new test out there that's testing for the BCL-6, and you talked so much about the urine lining and how it needs to be healthy. And because you specialize in uh, recurrent pregnancy loss and miscarriage, and I know they're really aiming to help such women. Can you tell us a little bit about Um, that type of test. At the moment, it seems to be the only one out there, which is why I mentioned it directly, but I'm sure there are a lot of companies who are looking at um, ways to support these women, Um, but I'd love to get your perspective.
1: What you're talking about that I'm familiar with is doing an endometrial biopsy to test for a marker called BCL-6, which is associated with endometriosis, Yep, and that's typically used in Diagnosing or sort of looking into reasons why somebody is not conceiving, especially with embryo transfers um, when they're doing IVF, it's not a typical test for recurrent miscarriage. I do know that the company that is, you know, selling that product is looking into whether it's associated with recurrent loss, but that's really not standard, you know, there really aren't studies to support that. You know, part of my job as a physician is to really be very conservative before I start offering tests to my patients, because it's so easy to get tests out there to market um, these days, as far as like the, the demands that the FDA has are just really very low right now. Um, And this is such a vulnerable population and doing an endometrial biopsy is painful and you have to miss a month of trying to do it because that test needs to be done in the luteal phase. So you can't, you don't want to disrupt a potential pregnancy. And so without a lot of evidence that that diagnosis is really going to Change outcomes for my patients. You also have to think, well, what are you going to do with that information? Um, there's not a lot of evidence that really supports that endometriosis is an independent risk factor for miscarriage. So, looking for that, you know, what's the treatment going to be? If you have a positive BCL6 marker, that is associated with endometriosis 90% of the time, but endometriosis isn't necessarily associated with recurrent miscarriage. And the treatment for endometriosis is often surgical or um, shutting the you know, ovaries down for two to three months with Lupron. Um, and you're losing precious time in trying to conceive and for something that's not significantly supported in the literature. So I'm really, not using that in my practice right now, but I'm always open to learning. Okay. No, I
0: I appreciate that perspective because I know as a patient who has endometriosis, I definitely feel like it's a potential game changer, but it's helpful to know where it fits in for the miscarriage and recurrent pregnancy loss versus other. So thank you for that perspective. I always like to make sure women have the opportunity to hear experts' opinions on both sides of the spectrum um, so that they can make an effective decision. So thank you for that. So last question is, what is your greatest hope for um, for women and especially those who are struggling with uh, recurrent pregnancy loss and miscarriage?
1: Yes, I hope that we have more research. I really do. I do strongly believe that genetics is one of the most important things that as we learn more, it might drastically change the field of miscarriage. Um, we know that 60 to 80% of pregnancies that end in miscarriage, if you test them, have a chromosome imbalance, but that does leave you know, 20 to 40% that are undiagnosed. And when we're looking at chromosome matching, it's matching 23 pairs of chromosomes and there's 10,000 to 25,000 genes on each chromosome. There just has to be a gene that's required for an embryo to get from four to five weeks, and another gene that's required to get from five to six weeks. So there are some labs in the world that are trying to look for a needle in a haystack and, you know, find um, genetic mutations just, you know that lead to an increased risk of miscarriage just like we know there's genetic mutations that lead to an increased risk of cystic fibrosis or sickle cell disease or muscular dystrophy, you know, we, um, we have to keep looking for that because it wouldn't be in every embryo that a couple has, but just like we can screen embryos for a mutation to a certain disease, we could screen embryos for a mutation for a miscarriage. And we can dramatically decrease the risk of miscarriage. But of course, that would also require IVF, um, which I know is costly and certainly more intervention than trying naturally. But I just, um, I really do think that genetics are the future of miscarriage learning and care.
0: And thank you for, for making time to, to educate us about um, such a very sad time that so many women and couples have to go through.
1: I really appreciate your kind words and thank you so much for this opportunity. Really
0: appreciate it. social media algorithms.